I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. So let's talk about them. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. Even though this the film we're going to talk about this episode is still a week or two old, I still feel like I'm starting to catch up. Uh, there hasn't really been that many standout films that I have yet to see, uh, that, that I have seen since Blade Runner 2049, which, spoilers, is what we're talking about this episode. Um, so I, I sort of feel like I, I'm kind of finally getting back on track with this podcast after a month or two of sort of being uh, a week or two off, a few months off, and then like trying to sporadically... Uh, get back to speed, uh, as it were, with the things that I've seen and like kind of the big stories out there. So, hopefully, this will put me a little, a little bit closer to being back in the weekly realm that I uh, I was in for so long there. So, this episode, like I said, we're gonna be talking about Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, as far as other things that I've I've been doing lately, I'm catching a lot of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Um, uh, for some reason, thanks to War for the Planet of the Apes, I've sort of fallen down uh, a Planet of the Apes rabbit hole. I'm in the middle of Beneath the Planet of the Apes at this point. Uh, I'm looking forward to catching Escape from the Planet of the Apes, uh, because those films were before my time, so I was just kind of curious about um, a little bit of the history behind that long-running uh, franchise. Uh, you can also see uh, a new feature that I posted on CrookedTable.com, me professing my love for Jerry Maguire. I know that's not timely or relevant or uh, necessary or really anything anybody asked for, but, you know, fuck it. When you have your own site and you're just randomly writing things, such as the way of the internet, um, you know, you get to do that, those kinds of things. So if you care to check that out, that's over at CrookedTable.com. And uh, so let's move into, before we get to Blade Runner 2049... If you've ever heard this podcast before, you know that I love Star Wars. You can see that I think we did we did two full episodes before and after seeing The Force Awakens with me me and Kai kind of talking about what we were expecting to see and then afterwards our thoughts on it. So of course, the big Star Wars news these days has been the Last Jedi trailer which dropped and I have not had a chance to talk about it yet. So Let's get into that into a little bit more detail. The new trailer for Star Wars The Last Jedi. Something inside me has always been there. But now it's awake. And I need help. I've seen this raw strength only once before. It didn't scare me enough then. He speaks. I think that's the big thing that a lot of people are taking away from this trailer is that we finally get another line of dialogue from Luke Skywalker other than, uh, you know, it's time for the Jedi to end. So full disclosure, I've seen this trailer, uh, let's see, maybe five or six times already by now, just the initial watch and then just kind of refreshing uh you know the images that we get here and then again right before uh right before i was pushed re pushed record on this episode so i'm gonna actually play it while i'm watching it sharing my thoughts that have sort of been simmering over the last week or so so i uh it's very interesting here what's going on like before you even get the logos you get all these foreboding shots of uh atats or some version of atats and it's just really building up the threat of the first order which i i think you know, there's been a lot of talk of this uh, this film being very much an analog to The Empire Strikes Back. I think you do get quite a bit of that in this. It feels like the uh, First Order is really ramping up its efforts. They had a major success in The Force Awakens. Uh, granted, you know, the Resistance also destroyed Starkiller Base, but they managed to basically take out the Republic in one fell swoop. So I think this film... They're probably riding on a little bit of a high, having um, having dismantled the resistance and their uh, sort of their resources, as well as you know Kylo Ren uh, taking a a step towards completing his training. That was the big one of the big reveals at the end of the Force Awakens that he. I mean, I'm telling you guys like you haven't seen the movie um, that that he's not even done training himself. Uh, is not done 
you know, with his training, let alone Ray and her journey with Luke in this. So I think it does very much seem apparent based on this trailer, especially that Kylo Ren and Ray are on parallel paths. Now, from the previous trailer, I think there was a lot of speculation. Well, are they going to be brother and sister? And I don't know if that, I don't know if that 100% holds together because it would be kind of weird the way that they uh, had Ray and Han interact. They did deliberately cut away right when he's talking to Mas Kanata about who Ray is. And he does seem really quickly uh, to take a liking to her and want to keep her around to, to keep watch over her and that kind of thing. And um, I wonder if that would, you know, if there's a revelation that she's related to Han and Leia uh, in that way, I think that would recontextualize that entire um you know, that entire relationship. So I don't, I don't know if that's the way they're going to go. I think there's, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of familial connection going on, um, whether she's Luke's daughter, like a lot of people have speculated, or if she's related to Obi-Wan or Palpatine or someone else that we haven't thought of. Um, there's a million theories, of course, to that. Almost as many as there are <laughs> about Snoke's uh, identity himself. So, um, but this film does seem like they are, uh, setting these two on sort of a uh, a parallel path that is going to collide in an interesting way in this in this uh, in this film. So of course we get Ray and her lightsaber, and, and and really looking forward to seeing that. I think it's interesting. This is the first Star Wars movie to ever pick up from the moment that the previous one ended. Normally we get time jumps of years, and here we got Ray sort of picking right up on the island with Luke learning how to be a Jedi and, and basically scaring him with her innate abilities. Now that feeds into the whole Mary Sue-ness of it all, where a lot of people were just like, well, she's just great at everything. Well, it sounds like this story is actually going to be very much about why she is so uh, innately talented with the Force and, and um, where that power comes from. And the trailer seems to indicate with Luke's reaction that he is seeing the same kind of power in Kylo Ren because he says, uh, I've seen this this raw power before and it didn't frighten me that enough. It does now. And then it cuts to basically flashbacks of what looks like the Knights of Ren's destruction of Luke's Jedi Temple. Looks like it, it takes place during the same time period as that famous shot from the Force Awakens trailer with R2 um, and sort of the, you know, the burning, um, the burning landscape and, and Luke's robotic hand. Uh... I do feel like there's a lot of misdirect going on in this trailer. Lucasfilm, and this is part of the reason, I know, I know there was a big discussion with Ryan Johnson, the director of The Last Jedi, and Looper, and Brick, and the Brothers Bloom, about whether or not we should watch this. And he, of course, was saying, well, you know, watch it if you want to watch it, but if you want to go on 100% fresh, you know, I maybe don't watch it, but, uh, you know, it's still great, so check it out. So there was a lot of misreporting going on that he said avoid this trailer that, that that he was basically putting his foot down about you know uh avoiding the marketing of this and um i i kind of trust lucasfilm at this point as far as marketing i think the campaign for the force awakens the campaign for rogue one they didn't really give away very much it did feel like you get a general sense of the plot but the the journey is very much intact the twists are are very much kept out. Uh, I don't believe in the Rogue One trailers if we really even knew about Tarkin being in it, and certainly not, spoilers, I guess, and certainly not Leia. Uh, there was like very brief glimpses of, oh, Darth Vader's in there? What? But we didn't know that he was going to have like, essentially a battle scene. Um, the Force Awakens, there's a lot of, of uh, twists and turns there with the entire, the poster from The Force Awakens even had Finn with the lightsaber because they wanted to keep under wraps that Rey was the one that was going to be the central figure here. Um, so I, I, you know, against my maybe hesitant, better judgment, uh, decided to watch this trailer because I knew it would unlock a whole, I, I'm, I don't have the willpower to avoid all the podcasts and YouTube videos and, and discussion articles about breaking down the last Jedi trailer, I knew that wasn't going to work. So I was like, well, I might as well fucking watch it. So, and I'm glad I did because I do think in here at first glance, it seems like it's ruining a lot of key sequences with Luke kind of drawing the comparison between Ray and Kylo Ren, which I think is already inherent in the story. And you knew that they were on a sort of a collision course at some point. 
And uh, we knew that Kylo Ren was going to destroy his mask. We saw that in the previous trailer. The kind of the, the remnants of his mask. And I even think the one of the most pivotal moments in the trailer is clearly the Kylo Ren, uh, you know, trying to decide whether or not he's going to destroy the ship that appears his mother is on. And, um, you know, it looks like he's, his scars are fresh. So this also moment with him in the ship probably does dovetail directly after the uh, the end of The Force Awakens, just like Rey and Luke's thing on the island does. I don't feel I don't feel like these scenes are happening at the same place at the same time necessarily. I think that even though I don't know 100% how I feel about it, it does feel like this this moment specifically is sort of playing up the the tragedy surrounding Carrie Fisher and sort of uh, maybe tugging at our emotional uh, being a little bit emotionally manipulative just because they know that we lost Carrie Fisher and how hard that has hit the Star Wars fan community and kind of playing up the fact that Kylo Ren might take her out now too on screen. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Leia is going to probably survive this film unless they made a last minute change. Um, from some of the things I've read, it didn't sound to me like Leia's fate was altered due to Carrie Fisher's passing, at least for this film. It sounds like that was based, they were going to basically let that be addressed in uh, episode 9, whatever that ends up being, being called. And I think that might be the right way to go. Um, I actually did an article for CheatSheet.com several months ago um, after she passed away, kind of delving into some of the different ways that they could deal with Carrie Fisher's passing and resolve Leia's storyline. I don't think having her her son, you know, her on-screen son murder her in cold blood is going to be the way that they're going to go about it. Because one, it's repetitive because what is he just going to, he just killed his father in the previous movie. It feels like a repetitive story beat and I, I trust Ryan Johnson to throw a little bit, a little bit more complication and, uh, you know, a little do do something more interesting than just kind of do well the natural progression from the previous movie. It does feel like this one has some twists and turns up its sleeve, and even though the whole Empire Strikes Back parallel and comparison is going to be made, it's already being made. I think that the general, the general, um, the general structure of this main character on an island being trained as a Jedi and sort of the mounting pressure, the mounting conflict between. The, the good guys and the bad guys, in this case the Resistance and the uh, First Order. I think that's probably as far as the comparisons are going to go. Um, well, and, okay, and Rey is sort of grappling with the light side versus the dark side, like Luke did in, in Empire Strikes Back. Now, whether she ends up taking a different path than him remains to be seen. I mean, we did see Anakin sort of turn to the dark side, and then Luke fight that off, and then, you know... It it's kind of remains to be seen which way Ray's gonna go, but the way it, it seems like they're they're taking a very, uh, a very different approach than the the dichotomy of this Jedi and the Sith, and that there's they're trying to find a little bit more of a moral gray area here. And there's been the concept of the gray Jedi that's been I think in expanded universe stuff, so I wouldn't be surprised if this film delves into that a little bit more. Um, Okay, now we're seeing a Millennium Falcon back in action. And of course, of course, the Porgs. You get a key Porg moment in here. And I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that Ryan Johnson's not going to turn this into another Ewok thing. I'm of the mindset that the Ewoks are sort of the precursor to George Lucas deciding that this franchise was for children solely. Um, and and in, in a franchise that is pretty dependent on its merchandising uh the ewoks felt to me to be one of the most obvious like cop-outs as far as this character's in here to sell toys and of course that is the porgs like from a business standpoint that is what they're doing in this movie but will they be so overbearing to the point that they take up the entire middle act of this film the way the ewoks did with return of the jedi uh i i, I trust ryan johnson not to do that to us i think um, they're going to serve a function and they're going to be the cute little side characters, but I don't think that they're going to ultimately get a ton of screen time. It would really suck if Star Wars all of a sudden has like, you know, a minion level, uh, you know, cre minion level critters running around essentially 
taking the focus off of the main storyline and uh, and the talented actors that um, Kathleen Kennedy, J.J. Abrams, and, and such have put together for these films. I'm very happy to see that Oscar Isaac appears to sort of be taking a much more pivotal role in this film, moving up perhaps in the first order. One of the suggestions that I had for ways that they could handle Leia's storyline would, and I really should just link to that article in the show notes below, um, is that they could have Poe Dameron sort of step up and uh, fulfill her role in the, the resistance side of the storyline and just have her off somewhere else or kind of divert that uh, the focus of this particular element of this of the trilogy and let Poe Dameron sort of grow into that role. I mean, he is a fan favorite. Oscar Isaac is, is a tremendous actor and can pretty much handle anything you throw at him. So I think downplaying Leia's role in the first in the first order in the resistance and uh allowing Poe Dameron to sort of rise up in its place in her place I think is is not a bad way to go I think it's very it's telling to me that Finn is barely in this trailer I think he's in one shot in the previous teaser sort of uh like you know in a hibernation pod of some sort or or probably still healing from his injuries and here we get straight up tease of him and Captain Phasma battling it out which makes me feel much more uh much more relieved about captain phasma's use in the previous film i mean i sort of assumed that that wasn't all we were going to get from her and that this was basically just an introduction to what she would the role she would play in this trilogy she did feel very much uh a boba boba fett style character where at least in the special editions Boba Fett has like a brief cameo in A New Hope in the, yes, in the terrible Jabba scene. I know it's unfortunate, but at least we get that Boba Fett kind of breaking the fourth wall for a second, I guess, moment. Um, And then kind of rises to become a more pivotal character in subsequent films. And I think Captain Phasma has a lot of potential to be an interesting character in that regard. And the fact that Finn and Han left her, I guess, in the trash compactor was, uh, you know, she's sort of out for revenge now with Evan uh, Crap, whatever his calling them saying is. And um, I think uh, I think that could be an interesting battle uh, for this film. Of course, it's going to be very much a B story since the trailer and the marketing material and just fans' overall interest means that this is basically going to be a Kylo and Rey story. It's, um, and we get some... Brief glimpses at, like, ice wolves or whatever that is. And then Luke and Leia looking distressed. Uh, I, I uh, you know, I'm personally, and I've said this on the episode where I talk about Rogue One, I like when Star Wars is focused on the, the dark side and the light side and that eternal conflict. Because at its heart, that's what this franchise has always been about, is kind of towing the line between what's good and what's bad. And, and um, you know, either... Finding a middle ground, which seems to be what this film is addressing head on, or sort of, um, you know, making those difficult choices to choose your path. And I, I like that this this film is complicating that in interesting ways and adding all kinds of wrinkles to that. What the real mystery here is, and I know we get some choice footage here of Snoke finally, is what the hell is going on with Snoke? What is his origin? What is his purpose? What is, you know, why, what, what, what's going on with him? I think I've read a number of the theories. Honestly, I kind of, the one I buy into the most is the Snoke is Ezra Bridger from Star Wars Rebels. There is a certain resemblance involved. There is like a scar. And I think considering that Rebels has one more season and then it's done, I think the timing of that makes a lot of sense for Rebels to lay out the backstory for Snoke and to conclude soon after the general audiences learn that Snoke is, in fact, Ezra Bridger, leaving Star Wars Rebels the chance to sort of lead in, lead into that a little bit. And um, the only issue that they're really going to have is for... Um, general moviegoers who are not familiar with Star Wars Rebels or any of the canon or pre-canon, you know, the legends, I guess now, side of the expanded universe, just uh, explaining who he is and making it 
feel like they're not missing a tremendous chunk of information. Um, I think that the film could pull that off and have that reveal be there without making, without sort of alienating a large segment of the audience that has no clue that Star Wars Rebels is even a thing, let alone who the characters are on it. Um, but if you've seen Star Wars Rebels and you know anything about Ezra's story, you can easily see how that evolution could put him into Snoke territory. Um, Snoke does seem to be a lot older than uh, than you would assume that Ezra would be at this point. Um, but I mean, we've also seen Palpatine look a lot older at, cer at a certain point. So I mean... Uh, it does, that could be, you know, they could chalk that up to his, Tim tapping into the dark side or, or something, even though it doesn't seem a hundred percent for him that, that he's going to be a Sith. It does seem like he and Luke are, are sort of, uh, outside the Jedi Sith parameters of things, which would make sense why Luke might be the last Jedi. Cause I think going forward, we might have a, a new subset of force users, uh, at least in the films, cause there have been a lot of those. Uh, there's been a lot more dissection of what it means to use the Force in uh, in novels and games and things like that that has yet to really make its way into the film. Also, going back to the, uh, you know, sort of deception going on in this trailer, I do think that the Kylo Ren Ray uh, momentary alliance that the, this trailer sort of hints at I do think that that's probably not the same scene. I think that they're just trying to convey... They're trying to convey Rey's inner turmoil as far as what she's supposed to do next and uh, and draw a connection between those two characters. But I don't ultimately don't think that that's going to be the way it happens. If, if Rey does turn to the dark side, I don't think it's going to happen in that moment or in that way. I think it still would surprise audiences. The, the people at the marketing people at Lucasfilm are, are especially lately are really on point with finding ways to convey the tone and the narrative focus of a film without full-on spoiling key moments and that's why ultimately I felt comfortable comfortable watching this trailer as many times as I have because I don't feel like anything is going to be ruined in the experience when I go see the movie on December 14th and yes I already have my 3D IMAX tickets um, again couldn't be more excited about this uh, huge Star Wars fan since since the special editions I talked about that on a totally on a, on a completely different episode I guess I'll put some some of my previous Star Wars episodes in the show notes below but uh, super psyched about The Last Jedi. I love The Force Awakens. And this film looks like it's going to build on that in a satisfying way. Ryan Johnson has proven before that he can handle sci-fi in, in, uh, in, you know, like no other. And uh, just on a pure production value, I, this film looks like it's going to be an incredible film to look at. There's so many shots in this trailer that feel fresh. And this is the eighth well, the eighth saga entry in this franchise, uh, not counting Rogue One and, of course, Solo, which now has a, tr a title, Solo, a Star Wars story, um, or the animated Clone Wars movie. This is the, So this is the 10th movie, technically, 10th uh, theatrical release of the Star Wars franchise, and it still looks like it, they're finding new ways to keep it fresh and keep it interesting, keep the story moving forward. I just hope that Johnson is able to... Uh, avoid some of the pitfalls of falling right into the Empire Strikes Back template because I do feel as much as I love The Force Awakens I do feel like J.J. Abrams did you a little bit too closely to the uh, this sort of template of A New Hope right down to the fact that the the uh, story beats and all of that I, I, I that made me a little uncomfortable where you know people that are pissed about that film because it is sort of a reboot slash remake of A New Hope in some ways they kind of have a point to an extent. So uh, I just hope that this film shows that this new trilogy is not really just modernizing the original and uh, taking it to to new places and pushing the franchise forward to wherever the next set of films may take it. Now, whether that's uh, episode 10, 11, and 12 or Knights of the Old Republic, which is actually what I'm rooting for, uh, that remains to be seen. But um, so far, so good on The Last Jedi. 
And I really hope this is our last trailer for The Last Jedi because uh, I, I don't want any more spoiled. I don't want to run the risk of learning too much about this going in. And I think where they have it right there is is perfect. And um, I mean, let's face it, they're selling they're selling tickets regardless. Everybody that's going to go see this, that wants to go see this, is already going to go see this. So you don't stop selling. The sale has been made, Lucasfilm. We're good. That being said, we're going to move from one sci-fi franchise to another. We're finally going to get to my review of Blade Runner 2049. He's got every gun in the city. I've got you. We have to stop him. What do you want? I thought you might be able to help me with the case. He's constructing an army. Tell me what you remember. Everything. Speaking of trailers that know how to keep a secret, goddamn, Warner Brothers went perhaps too far, some would say, in the critical community, to keep the plot details of Blade Runner 2049 under wraps. And uh, ultimately, I think it does go a long way towards preserving the, uh, the surprise and the effectiveness of the storytelling in Denis Villeneuve's new, uh, new release. So if you're familiar with any of the reviews I've done on this podcast before, at least in the last several months, the featured presentation reviews like this always go as, as follows. I'm going to talk about the hype. I'm going to talk about the story the cast, the production, and then finally the verdict. So the hype. Going into this one, let me backtrack a little bit. So of course, this is Blade Runner 2049, the sequel to 1982's Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott. And my relationship with that film is a little crazy because I was familiar with it, but never saw it, but thought it was a traditional sort of sci-fi action thriller, but never really felt compelled to watch it until in my... I guess early 20s. I actually did a thesis, my college honors thesis on, uh, you know, myth, uh, morality in uh, science fiction and such. And of course, Blade Runner kept coming up in my research. So I ended up writing, I think, like a 24 page paper on Blade Runner because it's that rich. Um, longer than pretty much any of the other parts of my project that are devoted to a single film. So, uh, you know, when I first watched the film, I wasn't largely blown away. It, to me, the way I always describe Blade Runner is it's one of those movies that's not so much entertaining as it is interesting, as it is uh, fun to think about, to discuss, to research, to to break down. It's not really the kind of film. It's not a thrill ride, basically. Let's put it that way. It's not Star Wars. It's not, uh, you know, Indiana Jones or uh, any of the other, a lot of the other roles that in, uh, Harrison Ford is famous for playing, which is why I think when it came out in 1982, people didn't know what, quite what to make of it. And it, it crashed and burned at the box office. But the more I see it, the more I think about it, the more I read about it, and the more I, the more I consider how influential Blade Runner has been and what it's trying to say and the ways it tries to do that, uh, the more I appreciate it. So I actually give the original a 4.5 out of 5, not quite a, uh, you know, an A-plus across the board, but it's pretty close. It's like right up there. I have some issues with certain parts of it, with the pacing, with a little bit of the underdevelopment, the, uh, the relationship between... Deckard and Rachel, I think, especially, you know, in recent times has not aged well at all. Um, so I have some issues with the original, but largely I think it's it's a classic and deservedly so. And uh, so because of that, I was hyped going into Blade Runner 2049. I was hearing a lot of really positive things that Villeneuve had basically landed a, a masterpiece that the film is not only sort of a fresh take on the world of Blade Runner, but capably follows the story from the original film and is more of a, it's just as much a true sequel as it was sort of a, a not a reboot, but a revisit of this uh, post-apocalyptic neo-noir um, sort of atmosphere that Ridley Scott created so many years ago. So going into the story. So the story here, <laughs> which is not going to focus too much on the actual story because... Um, 
you know, Warner Brothers clearly didn't want you to know about it, and I don't want to get into full-on spoilers, because then I'll never, this will just be the never-ending podcast episode, because there's just so much to discuss. I could write another 24-page paper on this one, probably. Um, but the story follows uh, Officer K, who is a Blade Runner, surprise, surprise, played by Ryan Gosling, and he is basically trying to solve this mystery that I won't get into, because spoilers. Um <laughs> And uh, along the way, it, it tells in all kinds of themes that Blade Runner fans will be well acquainted with. What it means to be human, the the role of artificial intelligence, the whole human versus replicant thing, uh, where the hierarchy lands there, um, the sort of class system that, uh, that arises as a result, uh, the moral complications of having this kind of technolo- technology um you know in the mainstream it, it, it's it's like a veritable potpourri of thematic sci-fi goodness in this film and to me in some ways it's actually even richer than the original blade runner i think the original blade runner has its points to make and makes them very effectively and i feel like this one kind of takes those and builds upon them and takes the story and the world to the logical place that it would be 30 years down the road. I think the the way it does that is not only not only uh, satisfying to watch. Actually, I feel like this one is more entertaining than the original Blade Runner in a lot of ways. I feel like the there's a lot of subplots going on here, and you know whether or not they work for everyone, you know, it's kind of it's kind of you know depends on. I guess your interests in certain things or, or uh, you know, which parts of the film are resonating with you more than others. But there's a, there's actually feels like there's a lot more going on here. There's a lot more story threads. And for some people, that could be overwhelming. That could be off-putting. I've seen some people say that, you know, this film is incredibly boring because it is two hours and 40-something minutes long, uh, which is about 45 minutes or so longer than the original film. But I feel like there's enough story here that it warrants that that length. In fact, you know, I think in some ways we could have done with a few more few more minutes and get it to a full 3 hours because there's that much going on here. And objectively, there are sequences and subplots that could easily be trimmed away, but they all contribute to the greater whole to the the world of Blade Runner, to the thematics that I already mentioned um that were established in the first film and built upon here. Um to the the development of the character of K and some of the supporting players, of course, uh, Ana de Armas as uh, as Joy. Uh, I gotta look up this lady's name, and uh, you know Robin Wright's character and and Deckard is here, of course. Um, it's it's there's a lot going on in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and I think people that are are deeming it boring or you know sort of pretentious and stuff is there a level of pretension to this to this film i mean i guess so it depends where you're i feel like that's that's a very subjective thing that a lot of people are bringing into it with them uh so so, uh sylvia hooks uh plays playing love kind of the primary antagonist in a lot of ways and she is outstanding in this probably one of the one of the biggest revelations i would say it's between ana de armas and uh, and Sylvia Hooks, uh, they're both really strong in this film, and I think they're the ones whose careers are probably going to benefit from this the most, despite the fact that Blade Runner 2049 is kind of struggling uh, struggling with uh, the box office, much like its predecessor. But before I get too much into the cast, um, story-wise, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of, of good stuff to mine out of Blade Runner 2049. The plot here is a is in a way more complicated than the original film, but in a way just as simple. I mean, there's a central mystery and then everything else sort of spirals out of that. There's some elements in this film that come in late in the game that felt a little underdeveloped to me, but I think that they're supposed to because there's supposed to be big reveals of things that may have been happening in the background that we didn't know about. And in hindsight, they are sort of hinted at earlier in the film and and the, the foundation is already sort of laid for that reveal down the line. So overall, the story was really, really strong, really engaging. I didn't find a, a boring moment in the film. And, you know, I came out of this one well past 11 o'clock, 
by the time all was said and done. And I was not only was I not sleepy, but I was wide awake and engaged and uh, sort of juiced up on the uh, the tale that this film is trying to get across and the emotion with which it does so. Moving into the cast. So I sort of already alluded to, or not alluded to, I sort of straight out said, Ana de Armas and Sylvia Hooks as Joy and Love are the standouts here. I think that's very much the case. Gosling is, of course, Gosling. And I think he does have sort of an otherworldly quality to him in, in general. I've heard other critics talk about that as well. And to me, that that that's really kind of explains Gosling in a way that I never really thought of that before. Um, even in something like La La Land, Emma Stone feels like a real person in that. Ryan Gosling is just kind of coasting through it as this this guy who's kind of in his own little world. Um, sort of, uh, you know, very human, but also something, there's something different about him. There's something either extraordinary or off-putting, depending how you feel about it. I lean towards the former. And I think that that really kind of feeds into his character, uh, his character's arc in this film and his role within this world that the film establishes. And I think that Gosling nails it to a T. And, um, you know, that's a very rare quality, I feel like, in a way, uh, Rosamund Pike is very, it's very icy, has a sort of detached, kind of uh, mysterious quality to her. Just like Gone Girl made excellent use of that kind of inherent quality to her performance style, I think Blade Runner 2049, um, is a perfect fit for Gosling. Now, does he deliver an incredible performance where everywhere he's going to be Oscar-nominated all over again for this? I don't think so. I don't think... Let's not quite go to that, those heights again. I wouldn't have said that for La La Land. I would have said the same thing for La La Land, and he got an Oscar nomination for that. But the, the way this film is is uh, positioned in the awards season uh, and the way it's been so divisive and it's kind of a box office disappointment i don't i don't see that happening and ultimately i don't really think his performance is the strongest in the film even though he perfectly services his character um jared leto is in this of course as everybody knows making himself blind for some reason on set uh, just uh, up to his old jokery tricks again and he's only really in a couple scenes i think he he um he fits this role too just because he brings his Jared Leto nest to it, and um, and sort of, uh, and he fits into this storyline in the way that he's supposed to. He's supposed to feel like a little nuts, a little uh, sociopathic, a little, um, I don't know, a little, I don't know. Basically, it's, a, it's supposed to be a little confounding in some ways, and I think Jared Leto brings that to this. And the fact that they kept his screen time to a minimum, I think, was a wise move. Uh, Dave Bautista and Robin Wright are in this film as well, and I think that they're both really good with the roles that they have. I think their characters are overall very underdeveloped, um, especially Dave Bautista. I mean, he has the more limited screen time of the two, but um, you know, you don't really get to know either of them particularly well. They're kind of there to service the main story. The real focus is all is on Ryan Gosling. And a Dearmas, Sylvia Hooks, and of course Harrison Ford as Deckard, who I think is a much better gives a much better performance here than he does in the original film. There's more depth to his character. Um, we get to understand Deckard a little bit more. I, uh, I mean, the whole time, he's heavily featured on the marketing for this film, of course, because it's Harrison Ford, and he doesn't show up till probably at least two thirds of the way through the film. I'd say more like two thirds, not more than halfway, so probably about two thirds of the way through the film, almost. Um, and yes, I was wondering when he was going to come into the film, but there was so much going on in Blade Runner 2049 that I wasn't sitting there checking my watch being, where is Harrison Ford? So, but when he does show up, it does serve the story. And I think he, uh, he brings a lot to it and offers a really interesting follow-up to the original film. I will say though, one thing that did kind of bug me, and I know other people have mentioned this elsewhere as well, the sort of retconning of... Harrison Ford's Deckard's relationship with Sean Young's Rachel from the original film. I mean, I don't think that's a spoiler to say that Deckard's relationship with Rachel and, you know, the, the fact that the two of them sort of end up together by the end of the original movie is addressed here. And it, it's very much retconned as sort of a, a great romance. And I think that that's a little troubling considering the very rape-heavy 
context of the way in which they sort of get together in the original movie. So that bummed me out a little bit and, and kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But, you know, whatever. Blade Runner 2049 is going to do, it, do it itself, I guess. So um, that's just something that, that kind of bothered me uh, in this film as, as regards to his character. But that's really more the fault of Blade Runner itself than it is Blade Runner 2049. I think back in 1982, that scene may not have bothered audiences as much because we weren't as, as woke as the kids would say um, as we are now on certain issues especially in the light of everything that's going on with the Harvey Weinstein and all the all the crazy shit in the in the film community right now as you know regarding victimization of women and all of that and uh, you know I can't really hold it against Blade Runner 2049 for trying to sanitize that and sort of move past it. I think that the original film really dropped the ball on that. Um, but that's the cast. The cast here is across the board solid uh, with special shout outs for Anna de Armas, Sylvia Hooks, and, you know, Harrison Ford, who I think is much uh, gives a much more layered performance here with his limited screen time than he does in The Force Awakens, even though he's in that more and he's fun to watch, but it does very much feel like Harrison Ford kind of Harrison, Harrison Fording it up. Um, whereas here he did feel like he was embodying this character more fully. Um, as far as the production, goddamn, if Roger Deakins does not win an Academy Award for this film, I he's, he's I guess they might as well just they might as well like just disqualify him because he's not going to get it ever. This is one of the most gorgeous films I've seen in a long time. There are so many shots in here that that stay with you that like linger in your memory. Um, I think. You know, a lot of people have have said that um, Blade Runner 2049 is probably going to win uh, technical, or at least be heavily considered for technical categories, that it's very much a technical achievement, um, you know, regardless of how you feel about the story. And, uh, you know, if you think the film was really boring, you cannot deny the fact that this movie is amazing to look at. Roger Deakins, who's been nominated, I think, something like 13 times and never won, which is bonkers to me when you look at his uh, when you look at his filmography and some of the films that he's been nominated for and not won. Uh, I know he did Sicario with Villeneuve already, and that was an incredibly look, incredibly, not incredible looking movie. I'm getting so tongue tied about this, but he also look at the, the films he's been nominated for: Sicario, Prisoners, also with Villeneuve, Skyfall, which blew me away visually. Um, no Country for Old Men, Fargo, The Shawshank Redemption. He has got so many amazing projects behind him. So much incredible work. And if he doesn't win for this one, I, I don't know. Because this 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 film is... if uh, It has so much going for it. But if I had to pinpoint one way in which it is... is in which is, it is exceptional, it is its... Uh, art direction. It is the way it's not art direction. It is its cinematography. The way it's shot is incredible. Deacons like does things with the camera and like creates environments and creates crafts images that we've never seen before and presents ideas that we may have seen before in new ways that makes the film feel fresh and and elevates everything that's on screen. The performances, the score by uh, oh, crap. Who did the score? <laughs> I had it right up here. The score by Benjamin Walfisk and Hans Zimmer, which was Benjamin Walfisk is like on a on he's on my list of composers to watch after this and it and some of the other work he's done recently. He's done an incredible job here. Of course, Hans Zimmer does his, you know, does his thing. Um, he's also Hans Zimmer and so he's basically flawless across the board. But Deacon's work here really elevates everything that the composers are doing, that the cast is doing. The screenplay by uh, by Hampton Fancher of the original Blade Runner and Michael Green, everything across the board here is stronger because of the way in which Deacon's presents the uh, the images. The production design by Dennis Gassner. I mean, you can have a great looking movie. You can have actors pouring their heart out and a composer crafting amazing music, and environments that look incredible but if you have someone operating the camera that doesn't know what the fuck they're doing it's not it's ultimately going to kind of hamper the success of the film and i think deacons here is definitely the vip and 
the the real the real star of this film, and I think Villeneuve has probably admitted as much in in interviews. Uh, his direction again is amazing after Arrival and uh, and Sicario and Enemy and Prisoners, all of which I've loved. Uh, Enemy, I need to see it again because it is another one of those movies, sort of like the original Blade Runner, where it's like not necessarily as entertaining to watch, but more fun to dissect. Um, but all of his English language films, I have yet to go back and watch his original uh, French Canadian films, but I, I definitely have been meaning to do that. Uh, his work, he's he's definitely on my list of you know the best filmmakers working today. After this, these several movies, and Blade Runner twenty forty nine to me is the best film of his uh, to date, and only cements him in that uh, in that position as far as I'm concerned. So going into the verdict, in case you haven't been able to tell, I loved this movie. I thought it was on par with the original Blade Runner, in some ways even better. So I'm definitely giving this 4.5 out of 5. It's a, For a 5, for me to go 5 out of 5 on a film, normally doesn't happen right out the gate. I normally have to simmer on it, and a lot of times 4.5s get elevated to a 5. But it's not the kind of thing that I throw around uh, lightly. I do think that the movie does have... It does have some extra fat that could have been trimmed off it or extrapolated on. I think it kind of some of the subplots wind it wind up in that gray zone, where um, you know you don't really get enough of it, and because of that, it, it kind of leaves you feeling lacking. And uh, you know the the climax, the big conclusion, I think was satisfying, but not not near nearly the highlight of the film. I think that there are much more uh much more exciting and much more thought-provoking and visually interesting sequences earlier in the movie um so i gotta knock it a little bit for a couple of those things but overall blade runner 2049 is an incredible technical and storytelling achievement it really depresses me to no end that the film is failing at the box office considering how ambitious it is and the fact that warner brothers invested 150 million dollars in the production and it's out in theaters right now getting its ass beat by Happy Death Day. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Seriously? You're going to have a, a slasher movie? And that's not to say that slasher movies are bad. Scream is amazing. And Nightmare on Elm Street is amazing. But there's a, there are not... I mean, this Blade Runner 2049 is on a, another level compared to Happy Death Day, which is very derivative, which is, you know, I've not seen it, but I know I've heard a lot about it, and I've, you know, had it spoiled because I'm probably not going to really bother with it. Even though Blumhouse knows how to turn a profit, and the fact that it was made for $5 million and made 26 and a half in its debut weekend, very exciting. Congratulations, Jason Blum. But you guys can make your money, and... And that doesn't take away from the fact that Blade Runner 2049 deserves to be doing better than it is. To date, as of this recording, it has made, let's see, $64 million at the box office domestically. What the hell? That's terrible. For a film that costs $150, you would think that it would be doing a little bit better than that. But I think this is one of those cases in, the, in which Warner Brothers let a director who's delivered for them in the past and uh, has a strong critical and commercial um, you know, backing behind him kind of run wild with one of their um, you know, long-simmering long properties. This is, like I said, the first Blade Runner sequel that we've gotten 35 years after the original. So, And the way things are going, this will probably be the last Blade Runner sequel. And I think that the, the production house behind it and, and the studio was really banking on the name recognition that I don't think a lot of general moviegoers have. Um, I mean, if you're a millennial and you loved Blade Runner 2049 and Blade Runner is your jam, then uh, I think you're probably a cinephile. You're probably really into science fiction or you're really into movies in general. But for audiences that are just going to the movies to spend, a, you know, for something to do on a Friday night, they might not have any connection to Blade Runner at all. They might they might barely know what that is. So I don't think the name recognition really takes this film as far as uh, as far as it should, and definitely not as far as the studio was anticipating. So I mean, there's still hope that you know with Blu-ray sales and you know VOD numbers and things like that that Blade Runner 2049 will ultimately turn a profit, but it'll probably be a long time from now. And uh, it's, a, it's a big, it's a disappointment for me because this is definitely going to end up in my top 10 films of the year. 
I think Villeneuve has uh, has crafted something really special here. And um, at the very least, if we don't get a third Blade Runner film, I hope that this garners enough of a following over the next several years that we get any some kind of Blade Runner uh, expansion of this world. I don't necessarily need this to be a Marvel Cinematic Universe style. Or like, I'd give me 15 Blade Runner movies. I don't think we need that. But, you know, a comic book, a novel, an anime. I know we have, I know there's been a, a three uh, three short films that have sort of spun off from 2049. But, like, this is this is property has a lot of potential to grow into, uh, you know, grow into something a little bigger, a little more, um, a little more substantive. And, and without spiraling out of control, mind you. I don't think we need a Blade Runner film every year like Star Wars. I feel like that would dilute the brand entirely. But, um... If nothing else, I do feel like Blade Runner 2049 is going to age very well and uh, probably be regarded as a classic in 30 years uh, down the line. So Blade Runner 2049, it's probably still playing near you. Please go see it before it's gone because this film, especially with Deacon cinematography, definitely needs to be seen on the big screen. Uh, wait to see Happy Death Day until it hits, <laughs> until it hits Redbox or something. If that film's already turned a profit. Now go back to see Blade Runner. If you've seen Blade Runner 2049, you loved it, go see it again because it needs the support and uh, we need to support ambitious films like this. Even though, yes, it's a sequel, so it's not necessarily... I know that's usually the big narrative among the critical community. Like, oh, support original films. It's not an original film, but it's an ambitious one and something that's trying to go... It's trying to go for something much deeper and more philosophical than uh you know than just a popcorn flick and i think that whether it's a sequel or original whatever i think that deserves to be commended so blade runner 2049 check it out that's pretty much all i have for this episode i know i went on longer for blade runner 2049 than i thought i would but uh that's all we have for now you can rate and review us the cricket table podcast on itunes if you'd be so kind we're also on stitcher you can find me robert yanis jr on twitter at crooked table we're also on facebook and the other social medias you can find more podcasts reviews videos and other movie related goodies at crookedtable.com next episode we're going to be talking about something else not sure exactly what that's going to be yet i still have to figure out uh, my schedule what i'm going to see what i'm going to have to talk about but uh, in the meantime uh you know halloween's coming up there is an episode that we did last year, I believe, a uh, crooked commentary of me and Kai talking about uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, one of my favorite films, one of my favorite animated films as well. Uh, definitely check that out since it is the season. And uh, until next time, I've been Rob. We'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the low KED.